I have a very special guest for you today. She currently serves as the Vice President at Miracle for the EMEA and SEA regions. And prior to her tenure at Miracle, she's also worked in sales and consulting roles at IBM and PwC. She has a Master's in Language and Literature from the Sorbonne. And today, it is my great pleasure to welcome Laura Legale to the podcast. Hi, Paul. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Good. Laura, um, I'm, I'm fascinated by your background, uh, what I can see on LinkedIn. Tell me a little bit, of, first of all, where, where you grew up. Yeah, sure. Um, I grew up in Paris. I'm a, I'm, I'm a rat of the city. I've always lived in a city and always lived in Paris. Uh, I was lucky enough to travel uh, a lot, um, especially in South America. So I discovered the world, but always, always lived in Paris. Paris is one of those cities. It's one of the few cities that I've come across where people live in the city, a, a normal life, where most of, certainly here, and, and I know a lot of other countries, the, the cities are where people go to work, whereas Paris has that unique mixture. And uh, I, I'm envious because it's uh, actually what, what that I, I have some of my most fondest memories in the early days going to take photographs in Paris as well. Absolutely wonderful, wonderful city. It's, it's an amazing um, pla place to live in, honestly, uh, even today. And, and I'm still working in Paris, by the way. So uh, a lot of my life is, is here, even if I travel a lot uh, and I'm, I feel very lucky. Yeah, I, I can imagine so. And tell me then, Tell me a little bit about your life growing up in Paris. What was it like in terms of the school you went to, the friends you hung around with? What were you interested in? What were the kind of things that kind of gave you a sense of pleasure? Yeah, um, I think, um, I'm, again, I, I was very lucky in my childhood. Uh, I grew up with my, my two sisters and also half brothers and sisters, so very large family. And um, I think not so much as a child, but as a maybe teenager and young adult. Um, I was, how can I describe that? Not a very anchored person, if that translates. What I mean by okay. that is that I was, I was more the poetic kind that was um, kind of flying one, one meter above the ground and really occupied in my own thoughts about um, literature, photography, uh, music. Um, I was a big fan of jazz music, uh, going to jazz clubs. So I was pretty far away and not determined to do what I'm doing today. <laughs> That's the least I can say. It sounds wonderful. It sounds this classical bohemian lifestyle where you're, you're having you know, coffee and bookshops down a back street, listening to you know, non-mainstream music and reading books by great authors. And I, that's, I, that sounds like the perfect lifestyle to me. It really does. It, it, it is a great lifestyle. It looks pretty similar to what you're describing, but I think mm -hmm. at some point you also come to a, a kind of a reality check that you need to, uh, you need to, you know, earn your, earn a living, you need to make your own life, you need to grow up. Uh, that's probably the best way to describe to describe it. And um, I also had a kind of wake up call when I was finishing my, my studies in, in English literature in Sorbonne. Um, I, was, I was 
translating um, uh, Harun and the Sea of Stories from Salman Rushdie and studying Salman Rushdie's work. It was extremely interesting, but the wake-up call was, what do you want to do next? And next was being a translator, and that's a kind of a very lonely job behind your desk, alone in a room. And, uh, and if you're lucky, first few years, you would translate, uh, um, you know, um, like small appliances, uh, um, leaflets, you know what I mean? So probably not selling not it to me. Not, not, not Salman Rushdie uh, yeah. immediately. So I, I, I and I, I knew I realized that I, I'm more of a contact person, and uh, I had a great deal of help from uh, my my brother-in-law. I mean, the guy who became my brother-in-law. He's a Canadian guy, and I remember over dinner. I was 18 years old. We were having this discussion, and he told me, I "Think you should do something in communications and marketing." And I had absolutely no clue what he was talking about. And, and the influence was really there. I took a year off. I lived in London, worked in a PR agency, and, and started realizing that I was interested in, in doing stuff that are um, much more concrete than poetry and, and translation. Mm. I'm curious how you, felt, how you found London as a city to live in compared with Paris. <laughs> so I, I like London, but I have to say that I'm not really adapted to this city because uh, first of all, I hate beer, uh, which doesn't make me a good fit for social life in London. I'd rather have a very nice glass of red wine. Um, and I hate standing up in pubs that are crowded with loud music. <laughs> so, yeah. but apart from that, no, I really liked it. Made good friends. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that one. I do, I do understand it. Um, tell me then, you, you went to London, you studied marketing, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I studied marketing and, for one year, yeah. But you, you, what, you started, a, as I understood it, in PwC as a consultant, or did you have another role before that? No, no, I started as a consultant really by chance. I was hired yeah. by Renault, uh, the automotive company. I was hired to do communications. Uh, and it turns yeah. out that the day before I arrived, uh, the girl who was in charge of this project left the company uh, and suddenly there was nothing to be done. And they were a bit embarrassed with me <laughs> in this internship. And they offered me to work on a PwC change management project. Uh, and again, I had absolutely not studied, uh, you know, no business school, nothing that's related to those areas. Mm. Um, and I really started from scratch discovering everything um, mm. with, uh, from day one, great coaching from people. Uh, I think mm. uh, people have made a <laughs> great impact on, in my life. Uh, mm. the, the manager, Sophie, then uh, took me under her wing in a way. and. Um, I think I'm, I've always, always been a hard worker. So I was working hard because I liked it. And uh, mm. that's how I started uh, working in a consulting environment where really back then my studies were um, much more around literature. So very far away mm. from that environment. Mm. And I'm curious how your interest in literature, the arts, photography have shaped your values and your interests as you see them today? Sure. Um, so 
so you know this eternal debate between um, substance and form mm. like is substance more important than form or and I think this is something very early on in my life that I discovered um, that in fact uh, form is what structures uh, the substance or structures the message mm. or in another way um, if you want to get impact um, you need to be prepared you need to uh, have substance in your messages but the form equally is extremely important and mm. um, what I what I learned in artistic environments through the way the, the authors that I loved were using words or the photographers that I love were using images and how those words or images would make a very different impact according to the way they were using it and the message they wanted to convey. This is something that I realized very early on in my life, especially at home. So both my, both my parents are lawyers and I probably caught something from that. My, my mother used to call me a délégué syndical, which in English would translate into like a union delegate, you know, union right. representative. <laughs> I was always fighting for causes and, and, and for other people. Right. And I was using, I was using words and form uh, mm. intensively. Substance mm. was important, but from day one, um, the form was extremely important. So like, for example, in the, the first consulting job for T PwC, one of my great skills back then that I completely learned uh, on the job was PowerPoint. And it might seem stupid, but it's still one of my skills to be able to create form that conveys a clear message. Uh, and that is important in an individual contributor role, but it's equally very important in a leadership role because you need to convey clear messages around you to your customers, pro prospects, teams. So I've always spent a lot of time, maybe sometimes unreasonable time on the form, the format, um, as much as the content. Mm. And it's the form is what you're saying is what sells the message. Um, that's probably yeah. oversimplistic. But... No, 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 no. That's that's yeah. that's exactly yeah. that. I mean, it. it it doesn't mean that you don't need to to work intensively on the substance yeah. uh, and do your homework in a way. Yeah, but, it makes um, it easy. Sorry, sorry, I, I cut across you. I missed that. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. So, um, yeah. what I mean is um, working on the content, working on your your substance is extremely important. Preparing, you know, like a customer call or prospect call or a big oral presentation uh, today in 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 a sales position, but referring back to when I was uh, considered as a union delegate in, 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 my, in my home by my parents, I was working a lot on the words and the form uh, to convey uh, passion, to convey conviction. Um, this is something that I also learned recently in like pub public speech, for example. Use form, uh, use words and also use silences yeah I, I want to ask you about that because it's something that comes up regularly regardless of what your role is in business the ability to communicate is the most underrated skill I think that there is 
and that when you can do it well, it can certainly amplify or trigger, you know, put you on a, on a fast path. And, and so I want to come back to that. I, I was just curious, and I don't want to go past it because I'll forget, you, you, your parents were, had you identified as a, um, as a union negotiator, and, and there's a lot in that. And what I'm curious about really are the causes that were important to you then. Are they still the same causes that are important to you now? It's up to you whether you want to share them or not. I'm, only, I'm, I'm more interested in how people change over, the t over time. Yeah, um, I don't think causes have changed a lot, um, but I think what, one of the learnings over time is um, my own personal implication. Um, I think um, what I've learned over time is that I um, need to focus more on the result rather than uh, my personal role or impact. And I think back then, I wanted to have a role, I wanted to have an impact, I wanted to be heard, I wanted to be visible. Uh, I, 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 I. Yeah. And the I part has disappeared with maturity because now yeah. I'm more interested in the cause than the personal impact that I would have. And a small story there, one of my one of my hardest experience in my career and, and kind, of, kind of a very strong mistake that I made. When I was working at IBM, I was working for um, the, the, the French CEO of this company on different internal projects, like the growth plan. We were working on a three years growth plan for, for the French subsidiary. Extremely interesting, uh, very transverse. In, in, including financial elements, sales plans, and also HR topics. Mm. One of the topics was around stress um, at work and employee stress. And this topic was very dear to my heart. Um, we, so I work like a consultant, you know, root cause analysis and recommendations. And long story short, I, I think it took me maybe five or six months end to end to do this analysis, come up with a plan and work with having, you know, um, stakeholders involved inside the company and make sure that we could make a difference and deploy this plan. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's when um, I was pregnant and I, I left in maternity leave. And the plan that I was leading was shut down 10 days after I left. And it's because the I part was much too important and the content or the, the cause, I completely forgot, which is by the way, change management, supposed to be my job back then, to make sure that stakeholders would, you know, feel accountable, responsible, take action. And I think uh, it was a very hard lesson uh, because literally nothing happened. I was leading this with my own energy and passion so much that I forgot to make sure people around me would would actually do the job, not just yeah. myself. Yeah, that's quite powerful. Yeah, the fact you had disappeared made it easy for them to leave what they didn't necessarily want to pick up. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. I think yeah. they never really draw cared some, about it. <laughs> yeah. Draw some parallels between that then and leadership in an organization because to me i think leadership is a lot about change management yeah 
and, uh, and, and, and yeah, so, so for, for other leaders out there in terms of key takeaways for this, what, what are the key takeaways from, from that particular lesson that you had that apply to leadership and also sales? Because I think they're, they're, they're strong parallels. Yeah. Um, so, well, I think, I think first of all, um, and, and, and this is, I mean, this is a pretty common statement, but you need to be, you need to be um, exemplary. Does that translate? You need to show ex lead by example. Uh, mm, so mm. everything you do is is obviously watched by uh, your teams and and the managers around you. So you need to be very careful and and, and lead by example. Um, but another, I think, s s another part that I've discovered over time that made me uh, realize that you could have stronger impact. And again, with mm. this lesson in mind make sure that other people pick up and not just yourself because you have a lot of energy but people really pick up the, the topics that you want to move forward that are important to change or important to achieve is data and um, i think um, any successful leader or the most successful leaders or companies are data-driven organizations or data-driven people. And, and some, of, some of my most impactful experiences since then started with impactful data. So leaders uh, should um, be, be extremely anchored on data so that um, it becomes obvious to everyone that because X percent of Y and 10% of Z, um, well, it becomes obvious that uh, you need to do something. So let me share an example. Uh, again, back in my IBM times, I was working with the VP sales operations, with, which, by the way, is my absolute favorite function in a company. <laughs> I, think, I, th I think revenue ops, sales ops are extremely, extremely key people for sales leaders and sales managers. Um, they should be the ones who, if you're sick or traveling, should be able to replace you in, in any forecast call or, I mean, they're extremely important people because of this data-centric approach. So she was running a number of analysis and she discovered that um, she was, she was looking, looking at the sales incentives because she needed to come up with recommendations on evolution for next year. And one of the insights that she brought on the table of the CEO was that certain sales incentives were distributed up to 24 times for one given deal. 24. <laughs> How did they make money? <laughs> it says it says a lot about you know those complex matrix organizations with overlay and 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 matrix people all over the places. But it's kind of you don't you don't need to convince anyone if you bring this kind of data on the table. People will pick it up because you have to do something. So so obviously um, she 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 was able to not change the compliance, but to kind of make sure that the ownership of teams would be much stronger with less distribution of sales compensations on a given deal. And that really impacts the way sales teams work together. So 
that was extremely, um, extremely impactful. Here's what I'm curious about that because it's again, it's, it's not so much. It's the insight that the data provides that told her that there was a problem that yep. they wouldn't have spotted otherwise, right? Because it's just so complex. I'm just curious though. It's, maybe we don't know the answer to this. Is that did she go looking for that? Did she have a hunch, and then went to dig on the data, or was it just by accident? She kind of went, "Oh, what's this?" No, no, absolutely no accident. Um, I mean, her name is Virginie. She's also a, an amazing leader, um, an amazing sales leader. She's she's been chief revenue uh, operations of a of a great other SaaS company. No, I mean. That's why I think um, sales VP or EVP, whatever their, their level in the organization, sales managers, whatever their level, should work hand in hand, day in, day, day out with their revenue ops and sales ops operations because she knew the business inside out. She knew what matters and what does not matter. So she went looking for this data to share with the management team. Yeah. And and I mean, here now at Miracle, um, I, I just recently changed jobs and I'm super lucky to work directly with the revenue operations team. And this is exactly what happens. Um, our, our, our VP of, of operations uh, in sales, she is sitting in every key meeting that I'm that I'm running with the team. She's sitting in the forecast calls. So she hears about the business every day and she's able to make data has no value if you don't make recommendations or look for the right data at the right moment. So and, it, and it's powerful in everything. Like uh, another example, uh, when I was um, I was developing the, 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 the Scandinavian market for, for Miracle. Um, Miracle is a when I joined, it was a company of, of 10 people, so a really tiny French startup. And I was, and, and, and I mean, if, lucky enough, eight years in to uh, now be in a, in, a, in a global international scale-up company that is extremely successful. Maybe we'll come back to that later on because there are things, there are root causes, interesting root causes there as well. But so I was responsible for the Scandinavian market. And step one, back to my image around the form and the substance. I needed substance to go to retail, manufacturing, wholesale companies, um, C-level executives and tell them why they should consider the market marketplace model. This is what we do at Miracle. We, we help transform business models and, and adopt marketplace models. So first of all, the substance. And I did markets research and one of the numbers that's that I saw and that was very interesting to me was 45% of consumers, like Swedish, Danish, Finnish, uh, all across the region, 45% of those consumers, they buy from foreign websites. They buy from UK, German or French websites, mm -hmm. which means for the CEO of a great retailer in those countries, that their own consumer, I mean, their consumer base locally, almost 50% to round it up, are not buying from them. They're buying from competitors that are not, not even in the country. And this is because um, it is hard to have a long tail of products because those are smaller countries. And hence, 
the marketplace vision of allowing you to onboard third-party sellers and extend your product range without having to convince CPG companies or brands to sell those products to you without having to buy those products, put them in their, put them in your warehouses and ship them to the customers. But just by opening a marketplace was an obvious response to that market trend. And what made the difference was when I sat down in the first meetings with local sea levels, telling them this story with a local fact backed up with a strong number mm. made the rest of the story extremely compelling to them. Mm. My takeaway from what you were talking about on the data side is, sorry, this was, I was thinking this when we were talking about it, using it internally when you mentioned about your colleague being able yeah. to spot the overlays, et cetera, yeah. was that the data allows you to cut through all of the, all of the emotion, all of the ego, all of the BS that can kind of, the, the resistance to some change initiatives. It gives, gives you the evidence. The, what you're sharing with me now in terms of the marketplace thing with Sweden is, is a little bit different. It, 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 to me, my, my reaction to that was that if I was in Sweden and I had a business there, it would be to sit up and pay attention. That here's somebody showing me something that I may not have been aware of or maybe I had a hunch of but didn't quite fully understand. And so again, Again, it's still having the effect of cutting through a lot of resistance. That's, that's exactly my point, Paul. Uh, yeah. My point is, if you want to um, catch attention, um, you need to care about um, your message, the message you're conveying. You also need to care about the way you convey it. So mm -hmm. the data is how to get impact. And then you can also care about the form. Yeah. I would imagine that the now I now I'm beginning to understand why you put so much time into the form, because data by itself is boring, frankly. Right? It is. I mean, who, it who is. Who wants to look through spreadsheets and look at kind of and, and try to work out well what does this mean? There but there are clear studies huh, around that, uh, Paul. Uh, in a in a public speech, if you share numbers, people remember will remember twenty percent of the numbers. If you share mm. stories people will remember 80% of your stories. So um, absolutely, uh, number alone is can be pretty te tedious and boring and people tend not to remember those numbers. Mm. What con convinced you, maybe not the right word, what <laughs> prompted you, yeah, what convinced you? You left a company with, I don't know, tens of thousands of employees. Uh, to join a startup, I think you, how many you said, 10? Yeah, I think, I, I think, yeah, probably I was employee number 11, so it was a, yeah, it was a yeah, small Yeah, when you started, that's, I would say, that's like chalk and cheese in terms of culture. That's another one, there's, there's a cultural factor, there's a, there's a, a growth phase factor, there's a, there's so many different variables that exist. It's, it's chalk and cheese. What persuaded you to do that? <laughs> you had this wonderful, safe job. My father was very, very worried <laughs> when I told him I was leaving IBM for Miracle. That was not a very famous brand back then. It's becoming pretty visible now, and it's we're, we're lucky because it's the result of, of hours and hours of work from our teams and, and a lot of trust from our partners and clients. But, I mean, I... 
I, I, it took me, no one, no one had to convince me. It took me two seconds to consider this very seriously. So, I mean, miracle is an adventure. It's, it's an adventure. And how often do you feel that you live, you're living an adventure in your professional life? I, I, I just went through a, a sabbatical period of six months, which we, we can discuss later if you think that's relevant, but six months of sabbatical was an adventure. And for many people, it is an adventure, but I'm living an adventure on a day-to-day -day basis since I joined this company. And it's an adventure, why? Because it's a, so it's a, it's a company created by two guys who are entrepreneurs. And it makes a whole difference. I mean, remember what I told you a few minutes ago about the commissions being distributed up to 26 times. Uh, no entrepreneurs there. No, just people sitting on the table waiting for the money to fall into their pockets. So uh, it, it's, it's, a money, it's, it's a company uh, created by entrepreneurs with an amazing entrepreneur spirit. Even today, I mean, today, <laughs> obviously, we are an extreme. We are we are employing 600 people in in 20 countries worldwide. Today, it's it's just a different company. Uh, it's a very structured structured company with structured processes, and we are we are Series E funding and and kind of pre IPO phase. So it's a very different context, but what has never ever disappeared is this entrepreneur mindset. So uh, I think that's what attracted me back then. I was worried that I might do something and then be blocked, you know, couldn't move to the next step. But I've I've changed jobs three times since I joined this company, uh, even four if I count the different scopes. Um, again, recently changed jobs again for a, a new challenge that is uh, extremely interesting. It's the case for many of the early joiners. Many of my colleagues uh, from 2013 are literally still in the company and growing with the company in management roles or VP roles or doing different things or, or changing functions, moving from marketing to, to, uh, uh, to from, from uh, sorry, from um, solution engineering to marketing, for example, which is not completely obvious. So this having the ability to be a kind of, hyper-growth, pre-IPO company while having great opportunities for new people to come, but most importantly for the people who are already working in the company. Um, I'm not sure I can list a very long, long list of names of companies who, who, who offer you that, so this kind of adventure. And yeah. this is something that was pretty obvious from day one. Yeah. Sounds to me like perhaps you're, 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 you've come full circle in that as a, as a child and teenager, you love books, literature, and you like getting lost in stories. You like the adventure of those stories. And you've come full circle in that. That's, you're, you're now back to that. You're, now, you're, now you're in the story. You're living through it and you're yeah. going with it and you don't know where it's going to go next. No, you're, you're, you're right. Uh, I think living the story is, is something that, you know, makes you wake up super energized on Monday mornings as well as Friday mornings. Also the feeling that you have a lot of ownership and of course accountability that comes, goes with it, but true ownership of what you're doing, like 
building the go-to-market, building the sales strategy, building the sales coverage, um, defining the next sales plays you want to focus on, defining that you want to hire someone to work on the procurement side of our offering, which is something completely disruptive and new, uh, but marketplaces for procurement is one of the trends and hiring people to help you grow this activity with concrete results. You, you, you have free hands to be able to do that. It is, it is living an adventure and it's yeah. not just a book. It, it, it doesn't sound like it's a kind of a role or a job or a place for people who who just want a safe, easy nine to five. It looks for people who who are excited by and get motivated by the adventure, by the change, by what's around the corner. Absolutely. This is the yeah. kind of people we want to attract. Yeah. I remember the, <laughs> a sense of culture. I remember leaving Motorola, which was analogous to IBM. And it, when you leave Motorola, where the part I worked was, and uh, if you're, che you're leaving, you, you, open, you had to open your bag. It was, a, it was in a factory. I had a desk in a factory. And they used to check everybody's bags leaving. Or if you would taken away a laptop, you had to sign it out. And they all had, you know, their, their not QR codes, but their barcodes on their laptops. And I remember joining from, like yourself, I joined the startup. There was 30 people. And they had their, only their first round of funding at this stage. They'd raised 5 million uh, euros. And... I remember that my first day when they gave me my laptop, I said, where do I sign it out? <laughs> and the guy just laughed at me. He said, what? Said, what? What are you uh, talking about? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it is. It was a culture shock, but uh, a, a wonderful one, I have to say. Very good. I am, and you know I am, deadly curious to know more about your sabbatical. <laughs> so, I mean, so, um, so first of all, again, uh, extremely lucky that I've been allowed to do that. Uh, I think it, it's not obvious. Uh, it's not obvious, especially when your your managers or leaders have are very hands on. And so um, I have to thank Philippe, our CEO, for considering and allowing me to do that because it was not an obvious choice, uh, an obvious decision. So first of all, very lucky there. Um, and then the sabbatical itself, listen, um, I went back to school. That's what I did. <laughs> I, um, I've, I've, I mentioned it earlier. I've been a photography fan since I was 15. Um, I bought my first camera, uh, which was a film camera, really randomly during a vacation. And I never stopped taking, taking pictures since then. And I decided to go back to school. Um, it's a, it's a French, it's a famous French image school called, uh, uh, L'Ecole de l'Image des Gobelins. Uh, it's, a, it's a famous school in the center of Paris. And I, I went back there for two and a half months, so half of my sabbatical, to learn um, about photography. That's the uh, main and thing and that I did. did. What, I'm curious to know what you learned there that your experience to, to that date hadn't taught you. What was it that you got from it? So. One funny thing that I realized day one was that uh, almost 100%, uh, just a couple of, of students were using film camera, but almost all the others were already using digital cameras. And um, if my professional life is very, very, very digital, 
my personal life um, is not. Um, and I, 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 I remained using film cameras um, and stuck to it for until now, basically. I never, ever used a digital camera before. So one of the things that a lot of the different teachers taught us was something that was already obvious to me because you only have 24 or 36 pictures on a film that you're able to, to take. And also because of today's cost of, of, you know, developing the films, which I also do myself in my dark room. So it's, it's long and it's costly. So you Both never... And black and white or just black and white? No, just black and white. Just black and white. Okay. Yeah. But so you don't... Uh, you don't uh, take uh, 500 pictures in, in two hours because you know that then you're going to have to develop them and it's, it's, it's very long and costly. So one of the things was um, think, think twice before pressing the button. Mm. That's basically what many of the teachers told us is get prepared and think about your message first. Like the difference between a good and a bad picture in the world where absolutely everyone has an iPhone and can take pretty good pictures. One of, by the way, one of my favorite photographers, Eric Venture, is, has, he's been in photography professional for many years. He, he recently, three years ago, moved to using only iPhone for pictures, professional pictures. So. The difference between a good and a bad picture is, is, is not the person who's taking it, is two things. A, ability to repeat something that is good. Like, you don't do it by chance. You're able to create with your thought and preparation and technicity. You're able to do something good twice, three times, ten times, repeatedly because it's it's part of your it's yeah it's it's part of your um your exercise you know how you know how to do it and the second thing was you need to be extremely prepared 80% of your job happens before you press the button you need to think about what is your message what do you want to convey what is the message of this picture what do you want to show? Why? And then how do you want to show it? How do you frame it? How do you structure it? What will be the composition of the image? Uh, many different elements that you need to think about before. Then the technical as aspects of using your camera in itself, aperture, uh, speed. What are you going to use? Do you want to keep a lot of background? Not a lot of background. So what kind of focus are you going to put on the character you're showing on the picture, depending on the message you want to convey? That's a lot of things to process before pressing the button. And so there are many things that I think I was bad at <laughs> and I had to learn. But this, I, I didn't have to I didn't need to learn this because this is the way this is already my operating process when I take a picture uh, spending 80% and by the way Paul the link between this and sales is is for me absolutely obvious um, what I'm what I'm asking my team to do with with a, a level of expectation that is and the, and, and the bar always extremely high is I want you guys to spend 80% prepping 
20% delivering. You need to be extremely prepared ahead of time um, and you need to think about the message, the content, the structure, back to the form that I was telling you about before. Um, those are the kind of uh, skills um, that I think um, new generations of salespeople need to master. Uh, what I mean by that is, um, you know, there's a lot of buzzwords like value selling, consultative selling, challenger sales. Yep. And it's, it's all about spending a lot of time in preparation to, to have a great impact. A good picture having impact is the one that you've been maturing and preparing. It's the same for a sales meeting. It's the same for a normal presentation of a long RFP process. And yeah, I mean, this is really what I'm expecting from salespeople uh, to come extremely prepared. I think somewhere somebody needs to start a business school, sales school, that has photography deeply embedded in all of the exercises. Because what you're talking about is, is absolutely so true. I remember going on a, on a landscape photography class to Norway a few years ago, and there's probably five or six of us going around in the van, and the, the guy leading the, we stopped at this beach. Um, in Norway and everybody jumps out and sets up their tripods and he, and he comes over and he says stop 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 put the cameras away walk around get a sense feel for the place connect with it figure out what is it that that your that gets your attention then think about taking the camera out and so all of that, another one I would, I, I, again, I have these fantasy ideas of things I would love to do as part of a training class would be to give people, even just their, their iPhones are fine, go out into the street and come back to me with 10 pictures of strangers. Not random from a distance, but where you walk up to strangers and ask them to take a, port, a street portrait. It doesn't have to be a great portrait. It's getting outside your comfort zone, connecting with strangers. Yeah, which we had to do, by the way, Paul, during the, 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 the photography classes I was telling you about. That was Excellent. one of the exercises. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and there's, there's so many parallels. Uh, I think, to me, the biggest parallel, and I'd love to talk to you a little bit further about it, is the, that when, when, you're, when you're taking a picture, what you're doing is you're, com you're communicating some sort of emotion. You're trying to evoke an emotion yep. in, somebody, in the viewer. And in sales and in leadership, when you're trying to motivate people or you're trying to inspire them, you're also evoking, evoking an emotion. So that's, I think the big parallel is between what really great photographers are good at and what great sales leaders are good at is figuring out in advance what emotion do I, I want to evoke and then building the process to get there. Um, it's obviously a different process, but with, with a lot of parallels in terms of competencies. Yeah, and, and I, I fully agree. I think um, this, is, this is the new generation of salespeople I was telling you about. Um, and I haven't witnessed tons of them uh, in the market. And I think what initially made me a, a, a decent salesperson uh, becoming a sales leader, so with, you know, leading by example, was the fact that my consulting background forced me to 
come prepared, be curious about my customers, markets, environments, do my research, come prepared in a, in a meeting with very relevant points, facts, or figures. So this whole preparation work, and then also think about how you're going to deliver this. So the PowerPoint presentation, the form, um, including thinking about the questions you're going to ask because you want to create rapport during this customer interaction. Um, and this, this new generation of, of salespeople are people who master the art of um, curiosity, uh, so preparation, form, ability to be curious, to ask questions, and not just deliver a message uh, bluntly for 45 minutes and say, fantastic, what are the next steps at the end? Um, they, they need to be able to ask questions, keep quiet, part of the, the, the meeting and the discussion. I think initially in my first two years, when I moved to sales, so I went from marketing to sales, I was a pretty lousy salesperson. I was not good because I was, I was discovering a new role. Uh, I remember working, working with, a, again, another woman who's a sales leader now at Salesforce, Janine, and I think she was, a, she was <laughs> appalled by some of my questions or what I did in certain meetings. But this soft skills part, getting prepared, getting curious about my customer or prospect, market, competition, environment, gathering data, coming prepared with questions, those soft skills were the part where I was good. I was very bad at the rest of mastering sales um, competencies uh, that I've learned over time, how to manage uh, partners, how to manage pipeline, how to forecast. Those things I had to learn, but this part uh, that I simply had from consulting phases uh, of my career is something that I'm really pushing the teams to develop because this is what is expected in, in, a, in an experience of being sold to by our clients. Mm. You seem to me to be a preparer by nature. <laughs> what does that, that mean? <laughs> well, I mean that some people that their instinct is when they've got a task is to kind of jump straight in and figure things out. And some people, you know, their instinct is to slow things down. Let me, let me, let me understand this. I want to get to the details. Now, obviously, people who've been in business a long time and have developed competencies can by nature be the, let's jump in, but they've learned through experience that that's not always a good idea. Yeah. But I, I guess my sense, and I'm, I should ask it as a question, are you by nature the preparer or is it something that you've learned to do? No, I've, I've learned I've learned over time. Um, okay. I'm very impatient. Um, I normally can jump in and start as I was describing before, uh, getting things done, and which is super important as well. But uh, this is no, this is something that I believe I've learned over time. Yeah, it's interesting because you struck me from when we first started talking was to with your first instinct that came across to me was okay. Let's get on a call to prepare. That's that's. I'm going to tell you that's rare. <laughs> it's probably <laughs> one in twenty guests that I would have that would automatically say, okay, let's set up a separate call to just so that I can make sure that I'm ready. And 
you exchanged an email with me with some thoughts to kind of yep. shape what we were going to talk about today. It, it, it is, it's not that common. I don't know what your experience of work is like, but certainly from what I see here. Um, I think we're, we're spending one, one hour together and yeah. um, one way to make it interesting for people to listen to is to think in advance what what is what is this this the core what is the heart of the experience messaging that i've that i've learned over time that could be useful for other people yeah. so i'm grateful for it because it's, it's not it's not my nature i mine is i'm, I'm aware of the importance of it but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm somebody who's kind of looking backwards oh yeah I, I, yeah maybe <laughs> no but you know and and by the way i mean i we, we need to welcome differences uh, in, in, in sales organizations and, and, and the team the team that we've built um, I mean now is if you if you look across EMEA and SEA it's, it's almost a team of, of 70 people across different roles BDRs and sales and SEs and uh, uh, we also have a consulting uh, team inside and the, because because we know that not everyone has those kind of consulting backgrounds and also sometimes consultants are very 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 bad at closing which is a very different skill set so we need to welcome differences but um, I think um, this process of um, being curious open first being prepared and um, you know, I'm, I, again, let me give you an example. I, 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 I learned a lot from from the sales cycles that I've worked with with the, with the extended team. I work with the um, uh, CEO of uh, Lyrico, a big office supply company. Um, came prepared about their market, but also learned very interesting things about um, the way their large accounts, large customer buy and the way uh, the marketplace model would need to adapt to uh, to their own business model. Um, also worked with a company, I don't know, I mean, so many examples like uh, um, Prevalia or Sharon Privé who have uh, flash sales model uh, who are pure players it's a very specific model um you know when they they don't sell products they sell campaigns so um learning uh, and being relevant to them comes with two elements first if you want to earn the trust of speaking to those c-level executives come prepared second listen and ask questions and for me it is not a matter of differences or this is mandatory for any successful person, whatever the level is, um, whatever VP, EVP, RVP, AEs, BDRs. Um, one of our buzzwords internally is to say we are all BDRs. Uh, we are all BDRs all the time. Yeah, so, yeah. If I look around, uh, here in Ireland, most of the companies, the SaaS companies, they're American. Most of them, vast majority that I can think of, with some exceptions. And you have worked for American companies, and obviously Miracle is a French company. If somebody was, wanted to come and work with Miracle, whose background was always with, say, an, an American type company, how would they notice? What would they see that would be different? working in a French company? 
Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think, um, well, so the importance of growing worldwide is uh, stronger for a non-American company. So the focus that we put in each of the regions where we grow to make sure that we have a strong local culture, local front office. So this is the way we're growing right now. We're, we're growing by creating hubs. Uh, and a hub is, um, is, a, is a mini miracle with all key functions represented uh, in, in different regions across the globe, uh, North America, South America, offices in Brazil. We opened offices in Singapore 10 days ago. We're in Australia and then, of course, UK, Germany, Nordic, Spain, Italy, France. So French culture, but it might be the same for another uh, European company. We understand the importance um, of having a strong local uh, front office culture and mindset because we don't have like American companies have the world <laughs> because the American the American market is so big in itself you could live out of the American market for 20 years without even thinking about starting to expand broadly uh, for French company it's the opposite you need to gain the world from day one so that's what struck me early is the grit and the, uh, the 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 culture to grow internally uh, internationally uh, from day one so we became an international company uh, extremely early on with a strong focus now in uh, in 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 america of course winning the american market is a key step uh, we have uh, another big mountain to climb which is the asian market extremely interesting when you when it comes to marketplaces um, marketplaces the, the marketplace model in itself is a worldwide opportunity. So we are forced to consider uh, the importance of being relevant absolutely everywhere that we start. I think that would be it. And the second part is the entrepreneur mindset. I don't know if it's specifically French. There are amazing entrepreneurs all across the globe. But um, um, though in those days, um, there is a, a big boost of, uh, of uh, French uh, tech companies um, in the past five to 10 years uh, that have started reaching pretty amazing um, uh, fun rounds. And it, it is because those companies are actually opening markets that are not just technology markets. They're highly technology-based, innovation-based, but they're also game changers. Um, what we sell to our customers is a change of business model. We're telling them we're giving you the weapons to fight back against the Amazons and the Alibabas of this world with the same tools, the same business model, which is a marketplace. And uh, that is extremely impactful. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a top line and bottom line decision. So. Um, I think the ability to gain those kind of markets that are not commodities uh, is also what makes um, it extremely compelling worldwide. If I were running a business and I were a natural prospect for Miracle, but I didn't know anything about you guys, what would I notice about my business and my market 
that would tell me that I needed to talk to you? Well, uh, I mean, very simply, the fact that uh, your your customers um, as a company are buying more and more online through digital channels. Uh, it's true in, in B2C, like retail or grocery. It's it's true more and more. It's it's also extremely true for, for B2B-based companies, like manufacturing companies or wholesale companies in automotive, energy and utilities, name it. So these companies, um, first of all, they notice that their customers are more and more um, buying through digital channels. Don't mention COVID, because this has helped us gain 10 years of, of market maturity. Um, the growth of e-commerce markets in one year has increased the same percentage as it has increased in the past 15 years. So wow. lit literally, uh, I think it becomes obvious uh, to uh, every single company that it is critical to address those digital channels. And then there's two ways to do it. One way, which is the good old way, you buy, you resell, um, and you have a very high cost of goods sold internally, and it's a it's a it's a it's a capex heavy model, um, and it's not very agile because you you own a lot of the of the weight uh, and the costs internally, um, and and very often when you do that, you become part of another big marketplace ecosystem. So you decide to sell on Amazon, sell on Alibaba. And another strategy is you become the center of the ecosystem. So you create your own marketplace and you attract sellers, uh, providers of products and services to sell on your marketplace that becomes the destination of your core customers and market. Mm. So if I were a business and I found myself losing business to companies overseas or I found myself struggling to compete with business I was losing to the likes of Amazon but didn't feel I could compete with them or didn't want to be on their platform I really wanted to control my own destiny I'd come to you you'd come to us um, you'd come to us for many other reasons globally those digital transformations projects lead to miracle uh, because it's the most um, agile way to do things um, you're just, again, not bearing the burden of, of stocks, logistics, referencing, purchasing. You are just a, a central point where buyers and sellers would transact in a very safe environment. And back to my data comments earlier in our discussion, uh, a marketplace operator uh, owns the data, which is the gold of our century. Uh, this is also a key reason why, uh, in the end, all of this transactional data belongs to you and allows you to improve uh, the service that you give to your customers, improve and differentiate from competition. Now that's something I think you just said that may have just slipped by in a moment of consciousness for a lot of people. So I think it's worth <laughs> re repeating. You said that data is the gold of this century. Yeah, I mean, data is new, the new gold, uh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you're so right. I, but I, I think we, we, we let it slip by, unless you're in the business, it's often just, it's, it's just more data. But when we think about it, you're absolutely right, it is, it is the gold, and you're, in the, you're there in the gold rush. Uh, final question I want to ask you, more to do with employees, uh, particularly sales. Uh, 
Tell me a little bit about what you're noticing in terms of what the younger generation, as you're employing, say, maybe less experienced, people straight out of college, for example, that's always going to be part of your, your mix. What are you noticing from a positive perspective that they're bringing skill sets that, that are just part of their generation, that, that are in their DNA, and then also maybe point to an area where you feel that if they're going to, I guess, settle in to a, into a, what is now a global organization and succeed, where do they need to develop? Um, globally, those, those, I mean, young people today in their personal and professional lives are looking for um, purpose, sense of purpose, uh, sense of purpose of what they do, sense of purpose of their company, sense of, of purpose for the community, for the planet. This is extremely, extremely central. So when they arrive in your company, they expect that their job, but also that the company they're working for puts this sense of purpose um, at the center of, of, of you know, of, of their strategy. Um, so because of that, um, I think um, I find the, the, the younger part of our sales organization are, would be the business development uh, team, so the BDRs. They come with uh, a great deal of energy because they're looking for sense of purpose. And mm -hmm. luckily enough, um, as I was sharing before, um, by nature, what we're doing at, at Miracle gives a very strong sense of purpose because we're not selling something that might fall under commodity, uh, like certain marketing improvement tools or plugins, mm. but it, it is core to the transformation of our customers' business models. And it directly impacts their top line. So when we start communicating internally, and we've been putting much more effort into uh, communicating this to, to the entire team, um, that our customers are going to achieve 5 billion GMV after only nine years being in, in the business. So um, using our technology, it gives them a certain sense of purpose. And that's the reason why they stay. So you need to, you need to be careful to fulfill uh, this sense of purpose. Um, but then you, you end up working with people who are super dedicated uh, if this is a genuine uh, mission of your, of your company. Mm. And if we look to the areas where you feel that they need to develop most, what areas do you... Yeah, I, I, I don't, I'm not being critical, I just, because one of the things I often see in sales is maybe, to give you an example, is a reluctance to maybe communicate face-to-face -face or, or over a phone directly with somebody. My preference is to do it via email. And in my mind, that's fine, but we, you'd need to also develop those skills of getting in front of people face-to-face. -face. Yeah, and, I... And so that's an example of the kind of thing I'm thinking of. No, I think you're right. I wouldn't say that it's specific to any generation. It is always harder to engage with people you don't know or to just jump in a stage and speak in front of 300 people. It is always not a, not a comfort zone when you arrive in a big show or event and you're supposed to look at people's badges and just start engaging. 
Um, it is uncomfortable for everyone. Um, I think one way to do this, uh, and, and so it's true for any generation, and it's absolutely, it's, it's a key success factor in our, in our, in the sales role. So one of the, one of the good ways to do that, I believe is first to, to, to have fun with it, mm. you know, have fun and like, be genu genuinely curious about the person you're going to speak with. And the second part is um, keep on developing other skills, other areas of interest than your pure job. Because in the end, um, I really thought for many, many years and I was I was I started embarrassed for many years that I didn't do a business school. And the reality is now, Paul, that a lot of the literature, photography, music background that I've had that was genuine. I just loved it and spent many, many hours is a source of interest and conversation with many, many of the C-level executives that we need to engage because they are the ones deciding on our projects. So um, one of my best sales person is, is a fan of, of opera, which is strange uh, he's probably around 30 year, year old and i'm sure that it brings him another dimension so spending time outside of work uh and and putting the same level of curiosity energy uh to learn uh makes you um, a different uh, kind of person when you engage with a stranger and start engaging a discussion about you know business but why not something else i love that uh it's probably we're going to have to wrap this up shortly, Laura, because uh, and, and I'd love to talk to you all day about it. I really do. My, my takeaway from what you just said, and it's been fascinating because you, you've also changed my mind about the, the email versus the call thing. You're absolutely right. It is uncomfortable. It's just a very human thing. The difference is that we just didn't have those tools and they have, But if we'd had them, we'd have used them just the exact same way. There's no absolutely. question about it. You're, you're absolutely, <laughs> absolutely right. You have changed my mind on that. And the other thing then, uh, takeaway that, that I'm having is that when hiring people, when looking for people, is actually look for clues in their personal life. What level of commitment, uh, passion that they bring to their own personal life, the things they're interested in, how they pursue them. And that will give you huge clues as to what they'll take into the workforce and a lot of the skill sets as well, because we forget that, that every, every great hobby develops you as an individual and all of that development can be easily repurposed in a professional context. Um, that's, that's a big takeaway for me as to, as to where to look for it, not always just look for, well, how did you do in your last job? That's fine, that's important. But also tell me about what you do when you're not working. Yeah, yeah, that definitely. The soft skills is probably the first thing that I look uh, at when I interview people, which I do a lot. It's probably mm -hmm. up to 30, 40% of my time because we are in a high growth mode. So we're, we have plans to recruit uh, across the globe. And I spend a lot of time um, on obviously achievements, data, skills, but s soft skills um, and the way, I mean, salespeople should sell. So if they're not selling their personality to you uh, during the interview. Um, a good tip from uh, a talent acquisition uh, in, in, in our teams was when there's a doubt, there's no doubt. So uh, that's an easy one. That's a nice one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
There, there was another, just as we're giving out tips, there's something else that, that I'd love to share with people as well because I think it's so smart. There is a, a regular uh, guest I have on the podcast and what he does halfway through, <laughs> I, I probably shouldn't be sharing this with people, <laughs> but it's brilliant. What he does, it's, half, he, it's, it's, it's an interview over Zoom. And what he'll do is halfway through, he'll say, listen, can you excuse, let's say it's you and I, excuse me a second, or I just love to, I want to get a glass of water. Can you hang on a second? And he turns his camera off, but he doesn't go anywhere. He watches what they do for the four or five minutes that he's gone. And he says, that tells me an awful lot, he says, about uh, who they are. Now, you, you can look at that and kind of go, oh, is that a bit voyeuristic? I don't know, right? But he's, what he's looking for is somebody who's writing notes and updating the call rather than who's somebody who's kind of sitting there just waiting for somebody to come back. That's that, and if they're just sitting there waiting, then he says they're not really a good fit for our organization. But if they're taking notes and actively preparing, or maybe even if they go get a cup of tea themselves, that's fine. Yeah, but exactly. Just, that's just fine. not sitting there, not, not sitting there with their arms folded. Or, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll like try that, that Paul. <laughs> I'll try yeah, that. Yeah. I've never done it. So I, I, I'd feel almost uncomfortable because the closest I've come to it is when I'm running a class and there's maybe 20 people on a Zoom call. And I'm not, my camera's off. I may do something like that and before I come on. So they can't see me, but I can see them. And, and it doesn't make me feel comfortable. I feel a little bit creepy by it. Um, or if I'm showing a video and I can see their reactions, but they don't see mine, it's a little bit like that program Gogglebox. Uh, so, but I guess if it, if, if it helps. A, a, bit of a, a bit of a similar thing to do might be not to shut down the camera, but just stop talking yeah. Yeah. and see how people yeah. react. Yeah. Just dead silent. Yeah. You, you mentioned that before, actually, at the start of our call, you talked about silence being such a powerful uh, uh, tool. Um, and there's another guy I know uh, on the recruitment side, and what he does is he'll have somebody uh, join a call, and it might be their second, say, interview call, and he'll say, OK, Laura, uh, thanks, good to see you again. Um, over to you. That's it. <laughs> He wants to see how prepared they are, what questions they have, and how they're able to take the pressure and adapt. But uh, anyhow, uh, we're, we're giving away all these trade secrets. Laura, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. I've been really, really thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I'd love to do it again sometime. I think there's, I, I, I'm, I'm following the miracle story is, 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 um, is, is fascinating. I'd love to talk to you more about the, that journey of the experience because you've been there from the very beginning and yeah I, I, maybe we could do this again in a few months time love, but maybe yeah, focus sure. on, on that i'd love to i'd love um, to do that again paul and yeah. especially we we are entering quite interesting times uh, as i said yeah. earlier um yeah. there's there's a lot of passion and energy in this company to keep on growing it in different areas yeah. so the, the the company that i'm working in today is, is going to be very different in, in six months from now. So uh, happy to do that again, sure. And you said you're, on, you're hiring. So if somebody now is inspired to reach out and contact uh, Miracle, where should they go to find out about what openings, what positions you're hiring for? So, I mean, there's a very simply a job section on our website. Um, 
anyone can reach out to me uh, easily uh, on LinkedIn. I'm happy to take uh, discussions with people who uh, really want to have an impact. Yeah. Are they all sales roles or across no, the board? No, I mean, we're, we're recruiting literally uh, across uh, all functions, um, be it uh, in, our, in our tech team, so the, the labs team, uh, Miracle Labs, and uh, client success, sales, uh, HR, absolutely everywhere. We're, we're actually looking for talent acquisition people because they are, in fact, the best salespeople in our organization. They are the best BDRs that we have, um, and you know it starts with them. Your talent acquisition people, yeah, the people who are bringing their their hiring. Yeah, well, yeah, they do the they they have the exact same job as my team has. It's yeah. literally the same. Yeah, yeah. Listen again, Laura. I want to thank you so much. I really enjoyed the chat and. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that Instagram account set up with the photographs. <laughs> I'll share that. Absolutely. Once Me it's too. set up. All right. Bye, Paul. Thank you.